Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy crew, welcome aboard to episode 93 of the Howie Games Part A. How are you all going? Well, well, I hope. Thanks for hitting play. And if you have recommended the podcast to someone, anyone recently, thank you so much because it really helps grow the show. This week, I am excited about this week, one of my favourite sports broadcasters of all time, Martin Brundle. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. As far as playing the expert role in a broadcast, which is what we call it in Australia, I haven't seen or heard any better on any sport ever. It's a big statement, but truly, his ability to be 10 laps ahead of the race in a sport that changes as quickly on track as Formula One, it constantly astounds me. All the information that's coming his way, the on-track scenarios, he's got timing screens, radio messages, strategy moves going on, then for Martin to be able to explain it all to the audience, who, if you're like me, then sit there and go, ah, yeah, I actually get it now. I understand what he's talking about. That is elite sports commentary. Kimi Raikkonen catching Valtteri Bottas. Second and third. Verstappen not that far behind them, but he has got his 10-second penalty to add. So uh, can Raikkonen do something now? Raikkonen, of course, had that nice pit stop on lap 27. Bottas on lap 19. There's got to be a good chance Raikkonen can steal second place here. Pre-commentary, Martin had a wonderfully successful and varied career. Racing, a Le Mans winner, a world sports car champion and a starter in 158 Formula One Grand Prix and Martin has some brilliant stories to tell from those times. From huge crashes, racing the likes of Michael Schumacher and Ayrton Senna, working alongside Murray Walker and highlights and lowlights from his famous grid walks prior to Formula One race starts. It's a shame you're too old to have driven here, really. I am too old to have driven here, but uh, shame you wasn't fast enough to get to Formula One. Give you a lucky nipple tweak. I haven't done that for... That grid walk. That grid walk for me is how sports telly should be done. It's live, it's unscripted, it's unpredictable, and it is brilliant stuff. You can see and hear Martin on Sky Sports' world-leading Formula One coverage, which is broadcast in Australia on Fox Sports. All right, hang on tight for one of the best storytellers that we have been lucky enough to feature on the podcast, Martin Brundle. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games from the UK, a legend of the Formula One caper. Absolutely pumped to have him on. Martin Brundle, welcome to the Howie Games. Distant as you are over there, it's great to see your smiling face. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a privilege to be on, joining a great list of guests. Well, thank you. And we must thank Mark Webber because he was the one that uh, asked you via me, which I really, really appreciate. All right. Having a chat to you about you, which I'm really enthused about because half the audience will want to know about you racing cars and myself and the other half of the audience will want to know about your TV side of the work, which really fascinates me. But we'll start with the car racing. 
you grew up not from where far from where you are now, and you told us earlier on in the intro. How does Martin Brundle get into motorsport? Well, we had some car garages. Um, my mum and dad, we used to sell used cars. He was a farmer, a strawberry farmer, and vegetables and that. And then one year the crop went down to London and the money never came back. So <laughs> dad started fixing other people's tractors and motorbikes and that and then grew it from there, started selling a lot of used cars uh, in a little place called Westland, which is six or seven miles from where I am now. And... The I, I just we lived at the garage. The house was at the garage. I'd walk out my back door. Would be the used car lot. Dad set himself up as East Anglia's leading sports car centre. I can remember the key fobs now. <laughs> it sounds a bit and, like it sounds a bit like Arthur Daly type stuff. I'm not casting aspersions yeah, on like your that. dad, but that's how it sounds. <laughs> but on one side of the used car lot were E types, and on the other side, I remember Aston Martin DB4s and DB5s and all that sort of thing. But it was the 70s and he couldn't give those things away back then. You know, they're, they're, they're so much money now, some of those cars. Um, but it, he, he, did, he had to tune, he did rallying. I used to go with him on rallies and had a tuning shop. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. Um, and when I was 12, my best mate at school, uh, Rusty, was, uh, said he was uh, going to go Banger, old car, old jalopy. I don't know what you call them over there. Banger racing, we call it here. Heap of shit over local... here, Martin, typically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so I built one. I found, I went down the used car lot, right down the front. There was a Ford Anglia that was really getting a bit long in the tooth. So I, I took all the glass out, all the upholstery, put the radiator in the back window so it didn't get smashed up. Um, any number of hoses I could find to plumb that from the, engine through to the rear window, roll, roll over cage. Then I went and told my dad <laughs> to, he needed to take, take it out of stock because I was going to go and race it. How old were you? I was 12 and we, he dropped me off uh, in the morning uh, down this little muddy track. I'd drive the car down, race for the day, and then when he'd finished selling cars on a Sunday, he, he would um, come and pick me up. It might be 6 o'clock, might be 7 o'clock. I'd just sit there with my, if I still had four wheels on it, at the end of the end of the road. So... That, that's how I started, going uh, oval racing in the mud. Um, and then when I was 15, I won the grand final in my Ford Anglia. It used to be the over 1500cc and the under 1500cc, all in the same race. Grand final of the day, the prize money was probably 10 or 15 pounds or something, which is quite a lot of money. Um, and I won. I won the whole thing. And somebody didn't like this. So as I'm going around, you get the checker flag, you drive around with it out of your window because you've got no glass in the car. And um, he reversed round in this great big Ford Zephyr 6 and wrote my car off, basically. I'm on, the, the meeting's over. I'm, I'm, I'm at the, I'm just doing the final parade lap of the day and he <laughs> wrote me off. <laughs> then, came, then came after me with a crowbar. Right. Uh, and it was all, yeah, it was, it was fairly low rent, this business. Yes. Um, uh, and that, my dad happened to turn up and pick me up and this guy's coming, you know, standing there with a crowbar and it all got, and we're like, right, we're, we're out of here. We're, so we fibbed about my age and then I started um, what they call hot rod racing, short oval with slicks and 30, 40 cars and a little quarter mile oval. Um, you're supposed to be 16, but I was, well, I was nearly 16 and uh, 15 in a bit. And that's what we did. So we moved over to that. Uh, it was great, a great. It was a no contact sport, so we went from banger at jalopy racing to um, this this quite high level stuff. But I only had, I remember, I had three slick tires. All I had, 
Um, so I had to put a wet. So I put a wet on the right front because it was a, a clockwise, you know, short oval. Yep. So it didn't it didn't do much work. And I put my widest wheel on the left rear for the crowd side. And uh, honestly, I mean, I laugh now when I look when I look back. Um, and so, and I often thought about that when I was doing a long test in a three day test in a Formula One car, and they go, okay, what one more set of just want another 25 laps on, <laughs> on that set of tyres, Martin. And in, in your heart would go, another 25 laps? And then I'd remember the, the time when I only actually had three slicks on my, <laughs> on my race car and to stop moaning about it. Okay, so you progress through the categories until you arrive in Formula 3. Your first real taste of single-seaters. Was it much of a step up once you got to that level? Uh, I wasn't really equipped for that. I found that quite hard. I had no, no real single seater experience and there was a lot of pressure which I didn't handle very well and I, I was struggling had some crashes and I was sort of getting on top of me a bit to be honest and then I, I we were racing again at Alton Park I stayed with my sister and went out for a couple of pints of beer the night before the race weekend with my brother-in-law it was Abba Ale or something it was really strong stuff <laughs> and I got out of bed and I slightly stumbled. I didn't. I thought well, that was pretty stupid. What did you do that for? Uh, I, I wasn't. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't drunk, but I didn't feel a hundred percent because this beer was quite strong. And I went to the track and I stuck it on pole position because actually I was really relaxed. I'd kind of got to that, huh. and it happened again in my life uh, a couple more times. Actually, I got to that point of well, my racing career it happened a couple more times. Um, of look, I've got nothing to lose. Who cares? You know, and I and I just let my natural juices flow, my natural talent flow, if you like, and stuck, as I say, stuck it on pole. I think I was on pole five times in the last few races. One, two, or three of them became Commonwealth Driver of the Year somehow, which I gave me a five thousand pound check, mm. and suddenly I was back on the scene. But I got dropped from the BP squad because it and Senna was coming the following year, and they, everybody soon he was going to win it. And they thought I wasn't up to beating Senna and they put somebody else in the car. Um, so now I'm sitting in Dave Price's office um, at the end of 82, having just won this won this award, won these races and just taken off because my confidence, I started to believe in myself again. Because I'm sure you've heard it on many of your shows, Howie, but most of sport's in the head, isn't it? Yes. You know, well, if you've got the basic talent, it's all about the head after that. And um, so I'm sitting in Dave Price's office who ran the BP Audi, that thing, uh, BP Formula 3 car. And he said, uh, I've got nothing for you. I won't do the Cockney accent for you. Um, <laughs> he's basically <laughs> in good old Cockney English. Uh, I ain't got nothing for you, Marty. It'll be something like that. <laughs> that was I'm good. That was some, good, Marty. <laughs> I'm going to call somebody who has and might be able to do something for you. And he rings this guy. And he's based up at Silverstone. And I, so I had my press cuttings from my local media and all that with me. And I, had, I was desperate by now. I, I was desperately trying to get this thing back on the road because I was, and my racing career was over. And he sent me up to Silverstone. And the guy I went up to see was Eddie Jordan, uh-huh. who lived in a semi detached house near Silverstone. Clearly got no money at all, nor had I, apart from this. Commonwealth Driver of the Year thing. And so we sat there and he, he said, I'm trying to get a team together. I said, yeah, so am I. I mean, 
Marie, his wife, was breastfeeding uh, their first child. <laughs> and we were, I never forget, getting up the next morning, searching around. There was really no food in the house much. And Eddie was potless. And then these two Irish Formula Ford drivers came downstairs. I didn't even know were there. <laughs> we're, were obviously lodging and renting a room off him. And so we, we decided to give it a try. Then, Martin, you come up against a fella by the name of Ayrton Senna. Um, everybody assumed that Senna was going to just wipe the floor. Uh, and he was a bit special. He did. He won the first nine races of that season. I was second in almost all of them. Um, and then I had another one of those hit the ground, bounce back, and nothing to lose. Uh, we're in a race at Silverstone. I stuck it on pole. He crashed trying to catch me. And two things happened that day at Silverstone. One is it and Senna realised I could beat him in the same car on the same day. And two is exactly the opposite. I realised I could beat him. And then started a series of races that I just won and he crashed or he crashed into me or he landed on my head once uh, at Alton Park um, and his head dropped and he made mistakes and I just kept winning to the point where we got to the last race of the season. And I was actually in the lead of the championship. He beat me in that race. Why was Senna, Ayrton Senna, what was it about him? You raced against him numerous times, obviously were there. And when he was tragically killed, what was Senna's secret? Well, he had a God-given talent. I mean, he was an emotionally driven man. Uh, I do get asked the difference between, say, Senna and Schumacher. And Schumacher was driven from the head completely. And Senna was driven from the heart, and we saw that. He, very, you know, it could often be quite emotional with situations, or we saw him with the F, with the FIA, and you know, with Prost, and all, all sorts of crazy things that went on. But he had a. He had this gift. He knew where the grip was. You know, if a if a good driver knows where the grip is, sort of mid and corner exit, Senna seemed to somehow know before and during the corner rather than during and after it. Uh, he just, he had a feeling for it. And you see that in other motorsports where guys somehow find a bit of purchase, a bit of grip, a bit of, a bit of forward motion, whether it's a Speedway bike or a MotoGP or a whatever it is. Um, and, and that I use an example <clears throat> in a, a wet race at Silverstone. I got a better start. I led, it was pouring with rain. I led down to Stowe, the famous Stowe corner. Senna went down the outside and I'm thinking, see you, wouldn't want to be you out there, mate. He went, <laughs> oh, I did a sort of a wall of death right around the outside on the karting line. I'd never raced a kart, and I never have really. I raced a proper kart. I used to save up for the kart magazine, let alone the kart. <laughs> um, and he took what is known as the karting line, where all you get all the clag and rubbish on the outside, and came out in front of me. And I'm like, how did he do that? Because I'm really got this beautifully where I need to be, you know, carrying good speed. Then their flag was, the race was red flag because there'd been a massive crash. A guy called Kiki Mansilla had a big crash. So now it's going to be a two-part race. Going back to the grid to, you know, to, to make the second start, I thought, I'm going to try Senna's, Senna's line. 
went steaming down the outside into Stowe, hit a puddle of water, aquaplaned, went down the grass, skimmed the barriers. <laughs> this is going back to the second restart. <laughs> Somehow survived that intact onto the grid. This time Senna beats me away and we finish one, two. He, he wins and, and I'm second in this atrocious, uh, the atrocious rain. And I said to him on the podium, your line into uh, Stowe didn't work in the second part of the race, did it? He said, I don't know. I didn't try it. It was too wet. <laughs> and that, for me, summed it all up. He somehow had this gift, this knowledge. And, you know, and he, you know, the qualifying laps that he did, the um, some of the outstanding performances that he that he put in where he seemed to transcend the car the track the conditions was was something to behold his passing at uh imola i presume you were there yeah i was in the race you would have been in the Uh, mclaren or i was well i was in the mclaren that he stepped out of to join williams so i i got his old seat at, at mclaren um yeah, it was, I mean, obviously an, an awful weekend uh, in terms of uh, Rubens Barrichello had the massive smash on Friday. Then Roland Ratzenberger died on the on the Saturday. Senna was hugely upset about that because there was a great paradox with Ayrton. He would be, he would be a man who would run you off the road. Uh, he'd be a man, and, and it was the intimidation factor where he would, and that's what he that's what I realised I had to stop back in Formula 3 as well. We crashed together a couple of times. Um, he would send one up the inside and leave you to decide on that day in history whether he was going to pass you or you're going to have an accident. And you had to have an accident with him to teach him a lesson in the end. And, and that was something, one of the changing things in 1983. Uh, he, would, he was pretty ruthless like that, as we saw with him, uh, and Prost in Suzuka, for example, when he when he had him off the road. Um, he would also be the first guy to get out of the car and run back and see if you're okay, which uh, he crashed into me in Monza and came running over because he was worried he'd hurt me. And it was entirely his fault because he was looking down, adjusting his brake by. It was 1993 in Monza, rather than looking where he was going. And out goes Ayrton Senna. Senna has retired, and that, I think, if... Well, I'll say this in a minute because here is uh, a replay from Ayrton Senna's car as he challenges Martin Brundle's Ligier and they're coming up to the second chicane, the Rosier. He closes right up on Martin Brundle and literally drives straight into the back of the Englishman. And um, so I saw Ayrton the night before, met him in the lift in the hotel actually and it was really hard talking. He was really cut up about Roland Ratzenberger. And the driver's briefing on the Sunday morning, which we used to have back then, was pretty tense affair. And it was just one of those times, you know, we the start line crash, all the things that went on. And um, I remember dodging all these bits flying around. Um, and the race was obviously red flag. Go back to the grid. And um, we initially, uh, the word was, it was Damon Hill in the Williams that had crashed. Um, uh, but we we sort of kind of heard and hoped that he was okay. Then we heard actually it was Senna Williams that had crashed. And then because we are preloaded with fluid, we all have to walk th- before the race. Uh, we all walk through the garage, go and find a bathroom. I know that's all the TV screens being switched off as I walk through the McLaren garage. 
And Martin Whitmarsh and McLaren was obviously sent to my car to manage me. Ron Dennis went to Hakkinen's McLaren to manage his, him and his situation, Dan. And we restarted the Grand Prix, which annoys me to this day. Um, some, what, 26 years later, we're approaching, uh, we're, as we approach May Day, uh, which was uh, May the 1st, the day died. Um, so we raced past a pool of his blood for, I think, 50-odd laps. The, you know, the old race must go on kind of analogy there. Heaven to um, Because effectively... In Italy, I don't. You don't die at the racetrack. You die in the helicopter on the way to the hospital or in the hospital. Yes. Um, I don't know what it is about insurance and liability, manslaughter cases. I mean, the manslaughter case on that for Pat, Sir Patrick Head and Adrian Newey and gang went on for ten years, ten years before they eventually got the car back and the um, and, and all of that legal stuff was switched off. But um, I'll never forget the silence at the end, when it was became clear that uh, Ayrton had died. Um, people were crying, mooching out of the paddock, but the, the silence was eerie uh, in many respects. This was the scene today outside the Maggiore Hospital in Bologna in northern Italy, where three times Formula One world champion Ayrton Senna died last night after his horrific crash at the San Marino Grand Prix at Imola. Just 24 hours after the death of the Austrian Roland Ratzenberger in a crash during practice. Supporters and admirers paying their respects to one of the greatest drivers in history, a true genius of the Formula One world, a driver many thought was untouchable. Keki Ros told me that Ayrton had died and I was getting changed in the McLaren area and Ron Dennis came in and said, um, had I heard anything? I said, well, I have, I have heard that he died, yeah. And, and cut Ron up, because you remember how close Ron and Ayrton were. Yes. Incredibly close. Although Ayrton broke Ron's balls at every opportunity, one of the few people who had the wherewithal to, 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 to do that, had the position, if you like, to do that. They were incredibly close. And Ron's another emotional animal. Um, and, but I'd, you know, I'd been in races where drivers had been killed and and, uh, it, and it was awful. We, we we all started, like, the next couple of weeks, do we, do we need this? Is this, you know, why are we involved with this barbaric sport? And... One of my great regrets in life is not going to Ayrton's funeral in Brazil, in São Paulo, because was, I, I, my teammate was killed back in 1985, Stefan Beloff, uh, my Tyrrell teammate, but we were in sports car racing together and I watched the accident at Eau Rouge and I, and I ran down to see if I could help. <clears throat> and um, and he, he died uh, in, in a Porsche at Eau Rouge. And I went to his funeral uh, in Germany and saw the absolute destruction of his family, his girlfriend, his friends. And it was so, say it was 1985, I'd been in Formula One just just over a year. I'd already smashed myself up badly in Dallas at that point. And I watched this destruction and thought, I cannot see this again while I'm a professional racing driver. Mm. Because... You just got you. You know, you, you can't. You don't. You just, you can't function. Then, if you imagine it's your family or, or whatever. So I didn't go, and and I kind of I, I seriously regret that. I wish I'd have gone, but that was my feeling at the time, and that was my decision making process. So that that's how it that's how it was. But um, it, it was truly awful times. How 
after all that happened, did you front up to the next race? We stood on the grid, uh, doing a, uh, giving a minute silence for Ayrton in Monaco, the next Grand Prix. And I think we'd all gone through this. Do we want to be involved? Do we want to do this anymore? And I looked at all the young guys on the grid and their eyes, their eyes, uh, they looked like rabbits caught in the headlights. And there's the light. And who's got the best start? It's Schumacher and Damon Hill's got a very good start indeed. Damon Hill. Oh, and that touch. Damon has touched Mika. And whoa, what a start. And that is very disappointing. And as Hill retired, oh, someone else there. Yes. Then I looked in the eyes of these young kids and I thought, I'm going to beat you today because I'm under control. And I finished second to Schumacher in that race. Uh, uh, Schumi beat me. Um, and I'm afraid that's the competitive instinct of a, of, a sports, of a sports person. I actually thought, here's an opportunity. And I don't, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not ashamed of that at all. That's just how I'm wired. I'm what, you know, you, you're, you're competitive people. So off we went. Schumacher continues on his completely faultless drive. And it's not long before the chequered flag is waved for him. Martin Brundle finishes in second place. Gerhard Berger takes third for Ferrari. But, I, I, I you know, the, the, the icon, the, the global icon uh, that is it in Senna, I think grows at that. I think it will continue to grow uh, for a long time, actually. Well, forever. Back to Martin in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, we are taking a cricket journey back to the 80s. The time of the underarm ball, the Kiwis in that magnificent brown and beige kit and some very rude moustaches. With former Kiwi wicketkeeper and now the best in the business in cricket commentary, Ian Smith. I made a massive, massive mistake which will live with me forever. In the World Cup rugby final in 2011, I interviewed the losing captain Thierry Doucetois from France, who ended up being the player of the tournament. He's a fantastic rugby player. And uh, for some reason, when Grant Nisbet, who is our host broadcaster, threw down to me for the interview, he'd never said, here's Ian Smith with Thierry Doucetois. Uh, here's, here's Ian Smith. And I said, yeah, I'm down here with Thierry Henry. <laughs> from Arsenal. Who <laughs> 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 just happened to be really one of the great French football players of the time. Yes. My godfather. And I tried, Howie, I tried to get out of it. And halfway through his answer, he, he came and he was very polite about the whole deal. Halfway through his answer, and I, I felt like, so yeah, and Thierry Henry would have been very proud of that too. <laughs> I, and I kept, the old shovel kept digging deeper and deeper and deeper. I copped it, man. Did I cop it from that? But they still hate me in Paris, I'll tell you that. That's Smitty. A very rare mistake for Smitty, that must be said, because he is the gun. That is Smitty coming up on the next episode of the show. Alrighty, back to Martin. You mentioned an early accident, Martin. We might get to Melbourne in that first Grand Prix at some point, but you started on fire in Formula One. Um, fifth in your first race, I reckon. Second, I think I was reading, in Detroit. In Detroit, yeah. And these are the last stages of the race. Cross goes through. PK leads across. Brundle is a second behind him and just fails to hit the wall. The fell off hit. The chicken flag goes out. Nelson Piquet has won magnificently and Martin Brundle, who's given him a magnificent race at the end of the Detroit Grand Prix. You get to Dallas and you have an accident. And the reading I was doing 
it sounded quite dramatic once the medical staff took over in that situation. We were flying around Dallas, though. Our cars were perfect for it. And was I ever going to be on pole position in uh, on that lap? Um, got a left rear puncture going through the chicane and clipped clipped the first part of it with my front tire that sent me across the track these are honeycomb cars they're not they're not carbon fiber chassis back then or else wasn't um into the wall which took the front off and remember they used to sit us right at the front almost all of my generation that that's still wandering around uh we limp basically because we would put at the front of the car to counterbalance the weight of the engine and gearbox um and so basically your crash protection was a tiny little nose box and some master cylinders out front. And that was it. And then I ricocheted across the other side of the track. But the only the only thing now were the things sticking out the front were my feet. So I went into the wall and it smashed my left ankle to bits oh. and um, broke my right foot in three pieces, in, in three places. I got out of the car and tried to walk off. I'd never broken a bone before. I didn't want to believe it because I was just on such a roll. And i never broken a bone since, thank goodness. And I tried to walk off, at which point I realised my foot was not actually connected to my leg. Uh, then, then they put me in an ambulance that had no air conditioning. I passed out. And they took me to this little medical box somewhere uh, and got my the toe of my, or my foot caught in the wire mesh. Oh, wire no! The, yes. Oh. Um, Put me in there and realised they could do nothing for me in there and then put me back in the ambulance, took me to hospital. Uh, and I remember laying in hospital. And because Bernie back then used to make sure that local TV couldn't broadcast the race. So everybody, if they want to see the race, had to come to it, you know, and sell some tickets um, in this crazy little Dallas track. that We only went there once. And, uh, yeah, and then this this... Big nurse kept coming in with a with a pin, and and just uh, pricking the end of my uh, big toe, going, "Can you feel this?" Oh. And I I realised what was going on. Um, eventually, I'm like, "Yes, I can feel that. I can feel that." Because they were going to take my foot off because uh, I was starting to get it was because there was no blood going around. It was gangrene uh, yes. or whatever. It was they were worried about that. And Professor Sid Watkins, bless him, came in, took over. Stopped them cutting my foot off because that had been the end of my career in a hurry. Um, and uh, at that, in the way that cars functioned back then, maybe with three pedals or, or whatever, it, it and basically got me back to England sedated. And I spent the next month in a Harley Street clinic in London. And this, uh, this guy managed to screw my foot back on. So we got uh, thrown out of that. Grand Prix later on. I don't. I don't exist in the record books for 1984, but I do limp like a good in every morning when I get up, and I'm in pain, and I cover it in Voltarol gel at every opportunity. And I do still have the trophy from Detroit um, that I apparently didn't race in, <laughs> according to the record books. So in my rather lovely trophy cabinet at home is the Detroit. Uh, podium trophy along with along with the others and the three great big screws that put my foot back on <laughs> alongside it lovely shiny things stainless steel chrome things or whatever they are um alongside it and the washers there's a load of washers on it as well for some reason uh sitting beside the detroit trophy and, and every you know when I'll, I'll limp past it and go 
I was. I was definitely there. I was definitely there. <laughs> Martin, in a previous life, um, you won't be aware, I worked for Bernie for three years. It was my first job. So the... 97, 98, and 99 seasons. You look, re- you look remarkably sane. Yeah, given yeah. That. Well, I was, um, I was the lowest of the low. I was pulling camera cables, and I was in one of those silver suits in the, uh, in the, in the pits, directing the signal mm. back when, when he went digital for the first time. I saw two crashes in my life live. One, Olivier Panis, the Frenchman, around the back of the Montreal circuit. Yeah, turn five there. Yeah, also at Silverstone when Shuey went straight through the gravel trap and. He broke his legs and Eddie Irvine nearly went and... Stowe. Yeah, yeah, Eddie nearly won the championship. Plenty of drama at the British Formula One Grand Prix last night with Michael Schumacher breaking his leg after a first lap high-speed crash. Schumacher slammed into the fence at 200 kilometres an hour. He was airlifted to hospital and underwent surgery. The German is expected to be out of action for at least the next three races. And it's such a beautiful sport that you're part of, but it's amazing when you see it live, the speed of what happens when it actually goes wrong. Now, as a Melbourne boy... First Grand Prix in Melbourne, I wasn't there, I was overseas, but your crash there is still legendary in Formula One. So if I'm sitting there watching the speed of which Panis all of a sudden oversteers and then hits the wall, what is it like in a Formula One car? I'll ask you what it's like when things are going beautifully, but what is it like in a situation in Melbourne where it goes, through no fault of your own, wrong in the half a blink of an eye? It's remarkable the speed at which it happens. Uh, it, it is. Um, let's go. Let's do the positive bit first. Yeah. When, when when you're working with a car, because uh, F1 cars in particular, but racing cars in general, don't have rubber bushes or anything slack in the system. You're in a really stiff chassis. You're seat belted to it at six points um, uh, with ball joints. You know, with, with rose joints and and all the cunning suspension sort of joints they have now. The engine and gearbox is mounted to the back of the chassis that you're bolted to effectively and the controls are very direct. You are at one, you're part of the car, it almost thinks with you. Um, and it, and it, it certainly reacts if you tense up. I'm sure it's the same if you're putting in golfing mm. or whatever, or a, a tennis stroke. If you tense, the car knows that and it slides a bit more, whatever. You've got to be relaxed in that car and you are part of it. So when it's all working beautifully and you can go through a corner like Eau Rouge flat out, it's exhilarating. It's, it's satisfying in the extreme. It's the most wonderful feeling of sort of man and machine, or woman and machine indeed, against the, you know, the track, the elements, the, the laws of physics and all the forces that are going on. It just feels like poetry inside the car. It's beautiful. When it goes wrong, certainly in my experience, and, and I think other sports people have this ability to slow things down and I could take you through that Melbourne shunt I mean was it 25 years later pretty much frame by frame um it, it is it, things go into slow motion and you're you're thinking about things you're trying to minimize I mean Senna would stick with a car even right up until the final moment, it hit the barriers if he was having an accident, if he, if he could, still trying to turn it, control it, and and, and you do. You, got to, you, you, <clears throat> you end up, I went up in the air. I mean, I started 19th or something. I had blew up in, and I didn't run in qualifying properly, so I was way out of position. I was P6 when I went into turn three, 
Um, but I was upside down and up in the air at the time, unfortunately. So it was a very, it was a very good start. <laughs> a sensational start by Eddie Irvine in the Ferrari, who indeed is up to second place, and Schumacher has passed the Williams. Down into third and fourth position goes David Hillen. Wow, that's one of the Jordans. This is what we feared at this corner, and that looks very nasty indeed. I got lucky. Uh, when I first landed upside down, I landed on the tarmac and uh, not on another car and not in the gravel because the rollover hoop would have dug into the gravel, probably broken my neck or something. And then it started to tumble uh, and what have you. As I'm going through the air, I can remember thinking, not in the trees, please, please, not the trees. Uh, so I, I went straight. I didn't go. If, you'd gone, if I'd have gone left there where the swimming pool is now, yes. I'd, have gone into the, I'd have gone into the trees and then then you're, you're probably not going to get out of that one. Um, and then, of course, it's a, I often describe it as like jumping, you know, jumping off the top of a building. It's not the fall that kills you. It's a sudden stop. And it's a bit the same. Well, it's very much the same in a, in a car racing accident or a road car accident, for that matter. When you see those big spectacular crashes and bits are coming off the car, as long as they don't come and get you, as sadly happened with Ayrton, all the energy's dissipating. And that, that means it's not going into your body. So it's the sudden stop. It's that big crash into the wall. Dale Earnhardt died like that in NASCAR, didn't he? And what looked like not that big a crash, boom, all of a sudden he'd gone. But, and uh, Mika Hakkinen had that in Adelaide, for example, that sudden stop where your brain starts, you know, carries on inside your skull or your body wants to carry on or whatever. So actually, it was funny. The only time I got scared in the whole thing was... Obviously, we were full of fuel back then, ready for the for the Grand Prix, carried a lot of fuel. Um, and I could smell fuel because I'd broken the car like an egg. And I could feel liquid running. I was upside down, running into my crash helmet uh, and generally around my neck area. And that panicked me because I thought it was petrol. Uh, but it, it wasn't. It was my drinks bottle emptying, <laughs> emptying into my crash helmet. And the fuel was just the smell of the engine having broken away. The red flag has gone out. It's Martin Brundle and miracle of miracles. This is well nigh unbelievable. Martin Brundle gets out of the car and he is seemingly all right. Uh, so I undid my seatbelts and literally fell out of the thing because I'm upside down, crawled out this tiny hole, um, at which point I was... I'm pretty sure the calmest person on the zone um, around there. And I, <clears throat> there's pictures of me. I went and had a look at my first ever lap for Jordan in Grand Prix racing. And obviously the, the first ever lap of the Melbourne Grand Prix. We've made it to turn three and I've wrecked the whole thing. I've smashed the car to bits. I literally walked around it like, what a mess you've made of that. And then I looked up and saw a red flag. I thought, that's a bit of luck. They've had to stop the race. It didn't occur to me it was because of me. Honestly, it didn't. And like, how lucky is that? I can get in the spare car. It was my only thought. Yeah, I've gone to Australia from the UK to race and I want to be in the race. And now we had spare cars back then. So my only thought, and that's when I said to the ambulance, you've got to get me back to the 
Back to the pits, please. Now, here it is. Let's have a look at it again. Now, watch the Jordan, the gold car, in the centre of your picture. Watch the McLaren. Watch the McLaren there. It's David Coulthard, who moves slide sideways. He runs into Martin Brundle, making up a good start. Martin Brundle's Jordan goes over spectacularly. What a tremendous tribute to the strength of these Formula One cars. So we got in, and this ambulance was obviously full of extinguishant or something, water or foam or something like that. Felt like it weighed two tonnes. And we were charging along. I have, have since met the driver because he's heard me say this. We're charging along and I'm like, you can't, no, you're not on the race. No, you, you can't turn in from there. You, we were, and I'm thinking we're going to crash coming back to the pits because we're, we're <laughs> charging along with this heavy old vehicle. I'm thinking, if he turns in from here, we're in trouble. So I get back to the pits and again, the, the pits were pretty, uh, everybody thought I was dead, you see. Um, and they said, you've got to, you, you can't start the race until uh, Sid Watkins says says you can. Uh, okay, where's he? Don't know. So I went and found Charlie Whiting, who was climbing up the steps to the uh, race starter's little perch up there. I said, Charlie, where's where's Sid? Charlie, of course, we lost last year, sadly. Mm. And um, I said, I don't know. He's probably at the back of the you know pit lane somewhere. So I went running down there, and and then I saw the uh, medical car. I leaped over the wall and Sid got out and came towards me. He said, I know you're okay because uh, I've just watched you run 300 metres or whatever he said. Um, what's the date? And I said, it's the, 20, uh, it's the um, 10th of March. And I knew it was 10th of March because it was my dad's birthday. My dad was dying of cancer. He died on the 24th of March, two weeks, uh, exactly two weeks later. And I nearly beat him to it. Uh, crazily so he's at home worrying that he's lost me and he's literally on his you know in in the closing stages with with cancer um he said okay you're fine to race well let me to the extent that i can without being there reassure you that martin brundle seems to be perfectly all right you can see him in the course car and the back there he got out of the car managed to undo his belts seemingly no bones broken no problems so great Thank you. Um, so now I'm coming back. And a marshal said to me, what did he say? And I stuck my thumb up and said, he said it's OK. At which point the entire place erupted because obviously this, I had no idea, this was being watched on TV. Yes. And it looked like I was putting the thumb up to the crowd. I was just putting my thumb up to somebody who asked me what Sid Watkins said. Got in the car and now the next thing is I'm sitting at the end of the pit lane. Was my head quite in the right place? Probably not. But, you know, I, I had a big crash in... Um, Monaco once in 84 when the brakes failed going into tobacco and my default there was to get back to the pits because uh, and I, I got back in the car there in the spare car and Ken Tyrrell plugged in and said you're 22nd on the grid Martin you there's only eight minutes left you've got to get on with it I said okay no problem which track am I at because <laughs> I was I was I was about 25 percent conscious I I had just enough nous to get me through the back of the swimming pool where we used to go down and find some toilets, the only ones in the pit lane, um, up into the pit lane. And I'd got myself in the spare car, but I didn't know which track I was at. So I think if you've got that default, got a race, got a race sort of thing going on, and that's what I had in had in Melbourne, just get in the spare car and go. And then I caught the pack. I think I caught Pedro Diniz, who braked about 50 metres earlier than I thought he would. And I managed to spin off and lose the engine. And, and where was that? Turn three. <laughs> The same corner, same corner where I'd crashed, you know, like an hour earlier or something. So it wasn't it wasn't my finest day. I don't I'm not proud of uh, being remembered for crashing. In fact, 
I was the driver, especially in sports car racing, I was the driver that always brought the car home in one piece, you know, with all its wheels pointing in the same direction and still attached. You know, I was I was actually Mr. Solid in that respect, but I did have a couple of crashes that I'm famous for. When you, when you look back on it and you mentioned sports car and I think you won sort of 14 or 15 races there and the 1998 world champion, you won Le Mans. Your Grand Prix stats, 158 Grand Prix, nine podiums. This is a um, reasonably direct question to ask someone. I'm sure you've been asked it before, though, but between two blokes that don't know each other, do you look back on Formula One and ever think, what if, about having a win? Or is it, wow, I gave it my all, I had a wonderful motor racing career, and I couldn't be happier with the way it went? Uh, well, first of all, I've been very lucky to have two careers in Formula One. And, and, and in some respects, and it pains me to say this, because I still, when I commentate today, I commentate as a racing driver, not as a, not as a journalist. Um, and my job, I believe, is to put the fans on the grid, in the car, on the pit wall, maybe in the pit lane from time to time. Um, so uh, it does appear that my entire racing career was a fact-finding mission for my television career. Uh, and that's sort of doing it down, rather, because I won races in touring cars and, you know, junior single-seaters, sports cars, uh, in pretty much everything I did up to Formula One. I mentioned earlier on about knocking my foot off my leg didn't enhance my uh, my possibilities. No. Um, uh, but... Um, I underperformed my potential in, in Formula One and, and I, I didn't really... First time I got in a proper car was 92 with Schumacher as my teammate. Schumi was faster than me, Michael Schumacher. Um, I could outrace him because I had more experience and back then there were less simulators, less software, less sensors on the cars. You know, the, the experience mattered more then. And um, I was a better starter than him because I had to be, and I was braver in the fast corners than him, because I had to be, because um, he, he had the technique. And he was, what nobody quite realised, instead of going like, how come Schumacher's matching or even now slightly beating the, the, old, the old hand, you know? Um, instead of like, my God, the Schumacher's going to be good down the road, isn't he? And mm. that was it. Nobody realised just how good Michael was going to be, or Michael indeed was. So it was a great shame. So just those... Two or three little pivotal moments, Howie, uh, in your career, and I, I think it's, uh, and you can't eat yourself up on that. As I say, I've been an extremely lucky person to have two careers out of Formula One spanning thirty-six years. So to answer your question, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> One final question regarding motor racing. I know you won't be aware of this. Um, Frequent listeners of the show do. I have two children, Martin. Me too. One is eight and one is ten. Um, yours are probably a bit older than mine. Um, <laughs> and I always tell them a little bit about the guest and then they like to ask a question of the guest. There's no prompting yep. from me. This is literally from the mouth of babes, as they say. So my son is eight. He likes watching Formula One uh, the next day after he comes home from school. His name is Mac, but he operates, for whatever reason, Martin, as the big penguin. Right. Do you say Matt or Mac? Mac, M-A-C-K. Mac, But yeah. known yeah. around town as the penguin, for whatever reason, a name right. he chose. I don't yeah. know why. This is, <laughs> I nearly fell off my chair when he said this, but this is his question for you, Martin. Hopefully you can hear. Here you go. Hi, Martin, big penguin here. I'm going to tell you a secret. You can't tell anyone, Martin, not one person, Martin. 
Sometimes my mum speeds when she's driving, but she says she doesn't. But she does. How fast is the fastest you've ever drove your race car? It's 240 miles an hour. So what's that? It's about 400 kilometres per hour. Miss, yeah. Um, and not on the road because we don't speed on the road, Mac. No. Do we? Uh, we definitely don't. Especially in Australia. You can't. I mean, no. my goodness. It's terrifying over there. You can't. I remember I drove to, I drove to, um, out of Melbourne one day thinking, why, why are all these people going so slowly? And then four tickets later, I realised why <laughs> they're all going so slowly. It's like, anyway, we don't, we don't do that. No, it's, of course uh, not. I should be ashamed. I'm, I'm ashamed of that. So on the racetrack, at Le Mans, down the old Mulsanne Strait, used to be seven kilometres long before they put the chicanes in. Um, and that's the kind of speed we used to do, day and night, wet or dry. It was a bit slower in the rain because you obviously got a bit of drag lifting the water up. Um, but 390 to 400, pretty standard in the middle of the night. Smell the barbecues from the fans in the middle. Uh, a little bit of mist coming across every so often. And it all feels completely normal um, until something goes wrong. Yes. Or you pass or you pass a car that's broken down on the side of the uh, side of the Mulsanne Strait. And it's like, wow, that's <laughs> quick. And if you, go in, if you go and watch the cars going down, if you go and stand alongside the barrier, I mean, it is... It is Positively terrifying. So, but it all seems really cozy, and it's almost—I I, I don't know—I I love that feeling in a Le Mans car on the Mulsanne Strait at night. Your lights—you know—a little warning light here and there, maybe on the dashboard. Your lights are picking out the barriers, the top of the trees. It just feels magnificent. So, and it doesn't feel that quick. However, Mac, however fast you're going as a racing driver, however much power you've got. It's not fast enough, and you've not got enough power. You, you, you <laughs> so quickly get you so quickly get used to it. It was Philip Island I was trying to drive to from Melbourne. That's what I remember now. I'll pass that on to the big penguin. Well done, the big penguin. That's the end of Martin Brundle Part A. Catch you for Part B when we hit the world of Formula One broadcasting. Listener.